invite you to take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We come to John chapter 9 this morning, and the title of our message is The Time Time is Running Out. I know some presidential candidates are thinking the same thing. Uh, time is running out, and it's time's running out for you to make your decision as well by Tuesday. And if you haven't already voted, I want to encourage you uh, to make sure that you do go and vote on Tuesday. But time is running out. Well, let me start with an illustration on a subject that's very dear to my heart. It's a golf illustration. There's a fellow by the name of Charlie Boswell. You may not have heard of him, but he was blinded during World War II while rescuing his friend from a tank that was under fire. He was a great athlete before his accident and a testimony to his talent and his determination. He decided to try a brand new sport. So there is hope for some of you fellas. It's a sport he never imagined playing, even with his eyesight, golf. And through determination and a deep love for the game, he became the national blind golf champion. He won the honor 13 times, and one of his heroes was the great golfer Ben Hogan. Uh, So it truly was an honor for Charlie to win the Ben Hogan Award in 1958. Upon meeting Ben Hogan, Charlie was awestruck. He stated he was He had one wish, and that was to have one round of golf with the great Ben Hogan. Well, Mr. Hogan agreed that having a round together would be an honor for him as well. He heard about Charlie's accomplishments, and he admired his skills. And he said, would you uh, like to play for money, Mr. Hogan? Charlie asked him. Oh, I couldn't play for money. It wouldn't be fair. Oh, come on, Mr. Hogan. A thousand dollars per hole. I can't. What would people think of me taking advantage of you and your circumstance? Chicken. (laughs) Okay, but I'm going to play my best. I wouldn't expect you to do anything else, said Charlie. Okay, you're on, Mr. Boswell. You name the time and the place. And a very self-assured Boswell responded, Okay, 10 o'clock tonight. I do know some places around the country that do have night golf, but they cheat. They use lights, and they use neon balls that you can see, and they even put a neon uh, liner around the golf. I remember uh, one time I was traveling, and I went to a I was at a church, and a friend of mine was there. He said, let's go play golf this morning. This was on a Friday or Saturday. It was during a missions conference anyway. He said in the morning, and uh, so we went out early in the morning, and it was uh, they weren't even open yet. But we started, we said, we'll play now and pay later. And uh, so we uh, got out there, and all we could see on the first hole was the mower mowing the greens. And that's all we could see. So we just aimed for the lights of the mower. But uh, hopefully we didn't lose the ball in the meantime, but it got light 
quickly. But uh, that would be kind of an adventure, wouldn't it? Playing golf or doing much of anything we do without our eyesight. You know, in one sense, blindness can be a matter of perspective. Put a sighted person in an environment without light, and the person is now, in a manner of speaking, blind. People speak of being blinded by ambition, the ambition of love. And we all know what it means to have a car pull into our blind spot. Well, here in chapter 9 of John, Jesus healed a man that was born blind. He used this occasion of this healing to teach a much deeper problem of spiritual blindness and its terrible consequences. You know, often we forget that unbelievers are spiritually blind and they live, live every day in a dark world. Now, we've seen in our studies in the, this gospel, John is very fond of symbolism. He often uses imagery, the imagery of light and darkness. In chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, he refers to Jesus as the light of men that shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. In chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And then in chapter 8, In connection with the Jewish ceremony of lighting bright torches at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus boldly proclaimed, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now here in John chapter 9, and particularly in verse 5, Jesus and the disciples will encounter this man who's been born blind, and he proclaims, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then the light of the world proceeds to give sight to this man who had lived his entire life in total darkness. Now, by way of contrast, at the end of the chapter, the proud Pharisees who thought that they could see were left in their spiritual blindness. (coughs) Excuse me. There are a number of contrasts like this especially in chapters 8 and chapter 9. In chapter 8, we see Christ as the light exposing the darkness. But in chapter 9, He imparts sight, both physical and later then spiritual, to the one in darkness. In chapter 8, the light is despised and rejected. In chapter 9, He is believed and worshipped. In chapter 8, the Jews stoop to pick up stones to kill the light. In John chapter 9, the light stoops to make clay to bring light to the eyes of the blind man. In chapter 8, Jesus hides himself from the Jews. In chapter 9, he reveals himself to a blind beggar. In chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus' word has no place in the Jews. In chapter 9, verse 7, the blind man responds obediently to Jesus' word. In chapter 8, Jesus is called a devil or demoniac. In chapter 9, he's worshiped as Lord. So we here we in these 12 verses that we're going to look at this morning, and then we'll look at uh, this chapter further this afternoon. 
But we are going to see here that Jesus is the mighty Savior who can open blind eyes for God's glory, and we need to be laboring to point people to Him. And so we see four things here, four great things. The great need, the great Savior, the great purpose, and the great urgency. Notice, first of all, the great need. The great need, the world is spiritually blind from birth. The blind man is a picture of the condition of everyone since the fall. Everyone is born spiritually blind. And this man lacked the ability to see Jesus physically, just as unbelievers lack the ability to see Jesus spiritually. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Lost people don't need just a little more information they, uh, in order to make an informed decision. Uh, they need a miracle. They need a miracle of spiritual sight. And that can only come from God. The disciples viewed this man as an interesting theological case. Verse 2, they say, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, since blind people usually have a very an acute sense of hearing, it was very insensitive and cruel of the disciples to say this within earshot of this poor beggar. They thought, you know, surely he can't hear what we're saying. But behind their question was a common Jewish view that there was always a direct correlation between sin and suffering. That was the view of Job's comforters, his friends, right? If Job was suffering, it's because he must have been sinning. It's true. All suffering in the world can be traced back to Adam and Eve and their original sin. And sometimes there is a direct correlation between sin and suffering, But the Bible is very clear that often even the righteous suffer apart from any any specific wrong that they have done. The disciples bought into the popular view. Since this man had been born blind, either he or his parents must have sinned as a result of this difficult trial. And as, as to how they believed that a man could have sinned, there are several possibilities. Based on the account of Jacob and Esau struggling in the womb, some rabbis taught that babies sin in the womb. Also, many Jews bought into the ancient error that a soul pre-exists birth. Some even held to reincarnation, the view that we can come back in a different life. But Jesus replied to this man, this man had not sinned in the direct cause of his blindness. Now the Bible does teach that children can suffer on the account of their parents' sins. 
You know, we uh, have this principle all around us today. Kids are born to drug-addicted and alcoholic uh, mothers and to a mother maybe with AIDS, and they suffer physical and mental impairment. Uh, Children whose parents are verbally and physically or sexually abusive suffer terrible uh, trauma. So the examples would be endless. But in this case, Jesus said, this blind man was not suffering because of his own or his parents' sins, but we see he's still very needy. He pictures all who are born in sin and spiritual darkness. And we need to see that all people who do not know Christ, even those who, are, who present an image of being successful and happy, they're really spiritually blind. They're very needy. And for all such people, there's only one solution. The great Savior. Jesus is the mighty Savior who can open blind eyes. The blind beggar did not take the initiative to cry out to Jesus for healing. Rather, Jesus saw him, and although John does not say it, I'm sure that he saw him as he saw all hurting people. He saw him with compassion. And since he came to seek and to save the lost, he reached out to this helpless man and he granted him the gift of sight. Now just think how this man must have felt. He began his day as he'd begun every other day in his dark existence, making his way to the busy thoroughfare where he would beg for alms. And we don't know how the disciples knew that he had been born blind, but likely that was kind of to garner sympathy that the man cried out all day, I was born blind, please help me, please help me. But he ended up that day seeing for the first time in his life. Now, why did Jesus heal the man in this unusual way? We think, spitting in the mud? That's disgusting. Applying that spittle into the mud to his eyes? Why didn't Jesus just speak the word? As he did with the man at the pool of Bethesda or at Lazarus' tomb. Well, John doesn't tell us, so we don't know for sure. You know, some early church fathers speculate that the mention of clay made of the ground recalls Genesis 2 and verse 7 where God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And this miracle could illustrate John 1.3 that Jesus is the Creator. Other suggestions have been made. You know, they didn't have the kind of medical advances that we have today. And so they probably used some kind of strange things that we would think would be odd. And I was reading a little bit about that, uh, that even using one's spit was a medical technique of that day. Well, it seems that John wants us to see the symbolic significance in the name of the pool. Notice there, uh, he says he's by the pool Salom. And, uh, of course, he translates that word for us there. He gives us the meaning of the word in verse 7. It means sent. And if we've seen uh, also in chapter 8, numerous times, we looked at that when we were in chapter 8, 
that John puts a big emphasis on the fact that Jesus was sent by his Father. We've also seen at the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would gather, uh, get the water from the Pool of Siloam and pour it out on the base of the altar in commemoration of God's providing water from the rock when Israel was in the wilderness. That water also pictured the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the all-sufficiency of Christ. We saw that in chapter 7. So this blind man had to wash in the scent pool to gain his sight. And if a spiritually blind wash in the one sent by God, they will receive sight. The unique way that Jesus performed this miracle also teaches us that each person is an individual. Each one of you here today is an individual that needs spiritual sight. And so this requires an individual approach here. Now there's nothing wrong with using means or methods of presenting the gospel. But Jesus here uses clay and the pool as a means of of healing, and Jesus never used the same means or methods twice, it seems, but it's helpful to memorize the basic presentation of the gospel. You know, you're going to meet different people along the way, and you're going to have to perhaps present it a little bit different to one person than to another. But it's good to have the basic presentation memorized. But you know, there's another reason that Jesus performed this miracle in this manner. We read about it in chapter 9, verse 14, and it says there, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And so by doing this, Jesus was deliberately violating several of the man-made additions to the law of Moses that the Jews had invented. You see, making clay was a breach of the prohibition of kneading, you know, kneading K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. Like some of you ladies do with, you make bread. Well, you don't do that on the Sabbath. He was kneading. He was putting uh, this, uh, this spit with the, the, the clay. And, so, and then placing the, the clay on the eyes violated the regulation that prohibited anointing. You can't anoint on the Sabbath. So the Jews said, And then healing on the Sabbath, of course, was forbidden unless they were to save one's life. So I think Jesus probably made the clay and anointed the man's eyes and instructed him to go wash on the Sabbath deliberately, maybe to kind of poke his fingers in the eyes of the legalistic Pharisees because they cared more about keeping rules than they did about this poor blind beggar receiving sight. Now we'll see, they, they got an, into an argument about whether Jesus was sent from God or a sinner because he broke their Sabbath rules. And they should have instantly recognized that the opening of the eyes of a blind was really a messianic activity. In the Old Testament, there really are no stories about the sight being blind, uh, restored to the blind. You don't find that. But there are numerous verses that show that only the Lord can cause the blind to see and the Messiah, who is the Lord, would do this. Now you find in Psalm 146, in verse 8, it says, The Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 29, in verse 18, says, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. 
In Isaiah 35 and verse 5, after saying that God would come to save his people, the prophet said, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Now when John the Baptist was in prison, you remember he began to wonder, Is Jesus really the Messiah? And if he is, then why am I his messenger in this dungeon? You know, that'd be a natural thing to think. You know, if I'm the messenger for the Messiah, why am I suffering? So he sent his messengers to Jesus to ask them in Matthew chapter 11. And he said, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And here again, Jesus was referring to Isaiah chapter 35, which he fulfilled. And then also in Isaiah 42, verse 6 and 7, God is speaking to his servant, the Messiah. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and I will... Hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. It's interesting that all the recorded miracles that Jesus performed giving sight to the blind was more than any other category. The Jewish leaders who knew the Old Testament, they should have said, hey, This is Jesus, the promised Messiah. But the point is, it takes a great Savior to open blind eyes. But the great physical miracle points to even a greater spiritual miracle. He opens spiritually blind eyes through the gospel. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, it says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, and if you get to the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, you need to keep the focus on Jesus. By the way, are you doing that? Are you sharing the gospel with others? You know, that's why you're here. I'm not saying that's why you're here in this church. I'm saying that's why you're here on this earth. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's why you're here. Well, we'll get to that again a little later. But if you have that opportunity, focus on Jesus. People will try to divert the conversation to all kinds of other things. And you know that if you witness to someone, they always want to talk about something else. While you may need to briefly address some of those issues, steer it back to Jesus. Steer the conversation back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mighty Savior who can open their blind eyes. And as you're sharing, pray that He will do just that with the person that you're talking to. So this story shows us a great need. The world is born in spiritual blindness But we also see a great Savior who can open blind eyes. That leads us, number three, to the great purpose. The primary aim of the gospel is to display the glory of God. Now, in response to the disciples' theological question, Jesus answers in verse 3, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. 
Now, some have a problem with that view that God would allow man to be born blind. What kind of God allows men to suffer? You know, that's a question you always get when you, when you witness to somebody. You know, what kind of God uh, uh, allows it to, the wars to be and allows people to suffer and allows people to have ca- cancer? I thought God was a loving God. But I think that those people who have too big a view of man and too little a view of God. If our suffering can bring glory to God and display His infinite worth to others, then it takes on an ultimate meaning and significance. And Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It was Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher who argued that God created the world for His own glory. Since He was infinitely glorious, it would be wrong for Him not to seek His own glory. And he also argued that there is no disparity between God seeking His own glory and at the same time seeking our ultimate happiness. We glorify God the most when we are most satisfied in Him. Do you get that? We glorify God the most when we are most satisfied in Him. God may be glorified in us through physically, physical healing, just like this blind man, or through our experience, uh, experiencing the sufficiency of God's grace through our suffering. But the healing of the blind man pictures what happens whenever God saves a soul through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gets the glory. We get the blessing. Isn't it a blessing to lead someone to Christ? When's the last time you had that blessing? Our happiness is in what He has done for us, and it contributes to His glory. And my point is, the gospel isn't mainly about how Jesus can give you a happy life for your own sake, but it's how He can give you a happy life as you proclaim His excellencies, as He tell, as you tell others how He called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that's what this blind man does. He's obviously a changed man. In fact, some of his neighbors thought he must be someone else. He's someone else who looks like the blind man. See that there in verse 9. He didn't know how much at this point. He just kept saying, Oh no, I'm he. I'm, I'm the one. Now he refers to Jesus as a man that is called Jesus. Remember, he still hasn't seen Jesus and he doesn't even know where he's at. And he will argue with the Pharisees that Jesus is a prophet. Later, when we, when he sees Jesus, he still, he will believe in him and worship him. But he's obviously changed. And his simple witness brought glory to God. And so will our changed lives and our verbal witness. And that brings us to the last point, and that is the great urgency. The great urgency is that we should be laboring to appoint people to Jesus for God's glory while we still have time. Folks, time is running out. 
John 9, 4 says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Now, if Jesus must have needed to work for the night was coming, how much more must we who are his children need to work? This is the harvest mindset that we saw Jesus emphasizing with the disciples back in chapter 4. He was talking to the woman at the well. Remember what their focus was on? Their focus was on lunch. That may be some of what you're thinking about right now. You know, it's getting close to lunch. And there's going to be a great lunch here, by the way. But their focus was on what they were going to eat. So they could get back on the road. His focus was doing His Father's will. Accomplishing His work. And that should be the focus of all who would follow Him. I want you to notice in verse 4, a little word, the word must. It's a word of divine necessity. We saw it back in chapter 4, verse 4, where He says, And He must needs go through Samaria. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria so that he could give living water to the immoral woman and to her entire village. And here, although the Pharisees were threatening to kill Jesus and his death was just months ahead, he says he must work the works of the Father who sent him. I wonder, do we see that necessity in our lives? It's not just that the Lord would like you to Uh, to use you to accomplish His works if you have some spare time. You don't have anything better to do. Well, maybe you could just, you know, do something for the Lord. Maybe you could tell somebody about Jesus. And serving the Lord is not only for the super dedicated. It's a necessity for all who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. That means everyone in here today that names the name of Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, it is a must to do the works. You think, well, I'm not a very important part of this family. Well, then we need to remember the parable of the talents. It was the guy who was given one talent who buried it and didn't use it for the master's purpose. And the master had some rather frightening things to say to him. But I want you to also notice the urgency of doing the Lord's work. Jesus said, the night cometh when no man can work. He's referring to death. His night was coming soon when he would be betrayed into the hands of sinners. But you know what? Night is coming soon for all of us. None of us are guaranteed even one more day. But even if we have the opportunity to live a long life, it seems like it goes by so quickly. James 4.14 says, Whereas you know not what will be on the morrow, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Redeeming the time means to buy up the opportunities. Now no doubt you've probably heard the saying, Only one life 
will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. I wonder, are you looking for and taking advantage of the opportunities that the Lord gives you to point others to Jesus? Help them to grow in Him? When he was just 12 years old, Robert Louis Stevenson was looking out into the dark from his upstairs window and he was watching a man light the street lanterns. And his governess came into the room and asked him, What are you doing? He replied, I'm watching a man cut holes in the darkness. You know what? That's what we need to be doing. We live in a dark world and we need to be as one preacher said, be punching holes in the darkness. Point blind people to the light of the world who can open their eyes for God's glory. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. And He can use you to do His works before the night comes when no man can work. Our hymn book has one of those great familiar hymns. Work for the night is coming under the sunset skies while Their bright tents are glowing. Work for the daylight flies. Work till the last beam fadeth. Fadeth to shine no more. Work while night is darkening. When man's work is o'er. Is that our, are we, is that our urgency? Do we realize the must that we must have in our lives? Our Father in heaven, we thank you.